I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The Athletic. Welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman pod on The Athletic. As usual, we're going to bring you exclusive insight and stories from our team of writers. We have planned a show that looked mainly at the last week of the transfer window, but then Chelsea sacked Frank Lampard. So you will get some transfer lines later from David, Laurie Whitwell and Adam Crafton, but we're going to start with the biggest story in town. Lampard is gone. Thomas Tuchel looks set to replace him. And joining us to get to the bottom of it all is the Athletics Chelsea correspondent Liam Toomey and our German football writer Raphael Honigstein. Liam, we'll hear from Raph in a moment. Let's come to you first. Do you think the writing has been on the wall for a while? Yes, it was. I mean, Simon Johnson and I ran a story at the beginning of January saying that Lampard's job was under immediate threat and that Chelsea were already exploring alternative coaching options and as far as we understand it those conversations never stopped and uh, and clearly things intensified after the Leicester defeat and we're led to believe that the the nature of that defeat was you know the final straw in all of this uh, and that the wheels have been in motion ever since then to to lead Chelsea to what is now clear as Thomas Tuchel. The uh, statement is well, comes across to me as being brutal, actually. We're grateful to Frank for what he's achieved in his time as head coach of the club. However, recent results and performances have not met the club's expectations, and this is the brutal bit, leaving the club mid-table without any clear path to sustained improvement. Yeah, um, I mean, in conversations we've been having today, the impression we're getting is that the board had absolutely no confidence in Lampard to turn things around and that in some ways the performances were even more concerning to them than Chelsea's results. Clearly the results weren't good enough. The expectation internally going into this season, particularly given the spending in the last transfer window, was that Chelsea would be closing the gap on Manchester City and Liverpool. It was not about getting fourth place. That was last year's aim. And and so when it when it was clear that Lampard was falling well short of that, the club felt they had to act. And I think that that statement reflects the sense of urgency they felt. But the the fact that there's also a a quote from Roman Abramovich in there, uh, which is extremely unusual, that's the first time that's ever happened in a manager sacking statement, I think shows how much the club wants to emphasise that this was not an easy decision or one they took lightly. Yeah, and they would have been wrestling with that, of course, because he's a legend of the club, which they mention in the statement. But I'm afraid that there's no space for sentiment in these sorts of decisions with this club. They've been there, done it before. Okay, not quite with the same emotional connection. But ultimately, it's... When I say a results business, I mean in terms of how Chelsea qualify success. It's with trophies. And you make a really good point that the performances were actually what kind of drove this immediate decision more perhaps than the sort of match results because some people have been pointing out that if Chelsea had uh, had beaten Leicester, they would have been on the same points as the same 
point last season. But this just goes to show that this was a decision made on what was going on on and off the pitch. Chelsea's hierarchy would have been sampling the temperature of the dressing room, as they always do. Uh, and we know that not all was well there. And for me, there is a fundamental point here that Frank Lampard was not wanted by everybody when he was appointed as manager. When I say everybody, I mean at the top of the club. There were reservations in some quarters. And so with that kind of backdrop to all of this, if results and performances go in a way that you're not expecting them to, sympathy is going to be in short supply. And once a club like Chelsea starts exploring potential alternative candidates, it shows that they're only going in one direction. And when Chelsea's train starts off in that direction, there's no stopping it. And all of that, David, makes it sound quite black and white, actually. But from the piece on on the athletic side, I think there are shades of grey here, Liam. I mean, this this is not, if you read everything on there, This is not all at Lampard's door. This is about a a hierarchy structure and who is responsible for what. And it's also about players who both haven't performed and have actually made their their unhappiness known quite widely, it would appear. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are clearly two sides to to every story of a manager's (laughs) sacking, and that's what we tried to reflect in the piece with with the structure of the piece the whole second half of it is a, is about kind of the lampard perspective really of of what happened and it, it's clear from the information that we've gathered that he didn't feel he could trust everyone around him and above him uh, and that happened actually much earlier than anyone would have realized even when things were going well last season and there's the the quote in the piece that if it was any other club Lampard might have walked last summer, which is a, a really, really strong uh, and, and quite shocking quote, you know, when you when you realise where the club were at that point. But I think it gives an insight into what the dynamics were like internally. And I think you, you raise a very good point about the dressing room. The dressing room always plays a key part in, in, in any eventual uh, manage, managerial sacking, the relationships there, the dynamics there. Uh, and it's clear that it wasn't a healthy dressing room. But what? But what's very odd, Liam, and I, I will hold my hands up and be honest here, it, that that doesn't sound like the Frank Lampard I know in in some in some of those quotes. You know, having mm. having worked with him, having seen him in a social setting as well, having you know texted him, a Frank Lampard that doesn't talk to people doesn't sound like the Frank Lampard I know. Now, I admit I am not a footballer in a dressing room, but you get a sense of the characteristic of of someone by spending time with them. Yeah, I might just pick up on that. And it's a really fair point. I was quite vocal in saying I thought Frank Lampard deserved quite a lot more time. But we need to understand that our relationships with somebody like Frank Lampard, who... We've come through the industry reporting on, meeting, spending time with, in your case, working alongside. is very different to a group of largely young footballers in a dressing room with different nationalities, different levels of experience and expectations. Frank Lampard was extremely raw when he got that job. I don't think we can underestimate the 
scale of the challenge he faced walking into that dressing room and with the egos, with the the, the varying stages of careers. So if you look at this summer, for example, because last season did go relatively well. If you look at this summer with all the change, and by the way, they made a number of signings, which many people I speak to in the game feel is an unhealthy amount of change within a squad composition. And they didn't manage to get players out, which we're going to come on to in a sec, I'm sure. But you will have... Players he's played against, like Thiago Silva, uh, whose English was basically non-existent and and is a sort of leader within the group, despite having, I'm sure, his own communication issues. You've got the homegrown core with the likes of Mason Mount, Tammy Abraham, Callum Hudson-Odoi. You've got a bit of a German-speaking sort of section of the dressing room with um, Antonio Rudiger, who was falling out of favour under Lampard and ostracised, despite some in the club very high up thinking that he was the best defender they had and not wanting him to leave when he was linked with the move away. Kai Havertz and Timo Werner, the key signings, uh, both German speakers as well. And so you've got a really fractured dressing room that doesn't so much reflect necessarily badly on Lampard. It might have been very difficult for anybody in that situation. And it might have lended itself to a more experienced manager who's used to dealing with these world-class stars these different personalities in a way that Lampard just wasn't. And from people that we've spoken to, you know, and I've spoken to people today since, you know, since this news broke around the dressing room, around the club, high up. I don't think they have a sort of hatred towards Lampard or anything. I don't sense a huge animosity. Yeah, there were concerns about what was going on on the training ground, how he was setting them up tactically. But I've sensed a lot of sympathy. Like they you know, there was a feeling that it might have been too soon. But from the hierarchy's view, they can't speculate on whether it was too soon. Chelsea are a club that have shown the courage of their convictions and stood by their sort of instincts in so many of these decisions in the past. And it has led them to success. And so when it's tried and trusted, whoever you are, they are going to do that sort of thing again when when they have that instinct and and Roman Abramovich doesn't hang around and and n- not even clearly for for people he likes and trusts. Back to your fundamental point, Lampard is a is a popular guy. I've always found him really pleasant. I wanted him to have more time. However, our impression of him is completely and utterly different to what was going on inside that dressing room. Just to pick up on David's point about the the dressing room, I think. When you have a situation where your most consistent, best performing players are not necessarily your most experienced players, not the loudest personalities and not the big money signings, I think that's a borderline impossible dynamic to navigate for any coach, let alone one who is in his third season of management. And I think that, you know, it's it's completely understandable that Lampard would have found that difficult. And I think it's inevitable that Lampard was always going to to make some mistakes on the pitch and off the pitch in this job because of, of his relative lack of experience. And I think, you know, it's actually quite a potent symbol now, isn't it? That what we now know was Lampard's last game in charge against Luton Town. Uh, he gave the captaincy to Mason Mount. And, and Tommy Mount, Abraham got a hat-trick. Exactly. And, and, and Mount yeah. was... Mount was really the symbol of the Lampard era more than anyone else. And I think it kind of symbolises the the issues that, that will confront uh, Thomas Tuchel when, when he takes over this job. Also, my, my point in saying the Lampard I know differs to the Lampard I've read about was also a slight point that I'm not doubting that that might have been the Lampard 
around the dressing room and around Chelsea, and that maybe actually the situation turned him into becoming something that he he, he isn't naturally, and it comes it follows on from your point, Liam, about he wondered who he could trust. And I think one of the interesting things in the article as well is that Petr Cech, the director of football, was training with them, which, which I, it, in my understanding and knowledge of how a hierarchy works, I find absolutely gobsmacking. Yeah, that was a very unusual situation. And, you know, whenever you spoke to anyone at Chelsea about Cech being registered for the Premier League squad, training with the first team on a regular basis, playing in a development squad game in de- in December against Tottenham the answer was always that he is he is only emergency cover and and that it's a positive thing that Lampard is happy about and I actually asked Lampard about this in his final pre-match press conference on Friday mm. and he insisted even then uh, that that Czech's presence and his experience was a positive thing that Chelsea had to make use of you know whether that's something that you just say to make sure you're all on the same page publicly who knows? But that that was the consistent messaging from 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 Chelsea and from Lampard. But it, there's no denying it's a highly unusual situation, and that's why I don't think it necessarily reflects terribly on Lampard or will be detrimental to his career, particularly going forward. This is how Chelsea operate, and there was a real tricky dynamic going on, especially with recruitment this summer. Not only had they been under a transfer ban previously, and yeah, they had managed to do the deal for Kovacic and and line up Ziyech in January for the summer, but this was essentially a, a rookie manager being handed a war chest, but not only a normal war chest, but almost like a double war chest that had been um, being kept warm for a couple of windows. And from from what I know, he 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 was very enthusiastic and backed about signing. Ben Chilwell, but then a raft of other players came in that were frankly not his work, even though he approved them and and played a key role in getting them over the line. Timo Werner, Kai Havertz, who would say no to either of them? I'm sure he approved of the signing of Mendy, despite probably not being the person behind it. Also, Ziyech, it it seems to be a recruitment department decision that he would have signed off. Um, And so, and, and, and then you come down to the Declan Rice one, which was a player that he really wanted to sign. And I know very well that there were reservations inside the club, spending that level of money that it would have taken to get him from West Ham for a player that they released from their academy for nothing. And and people around the game said to me, Lampard needs to be very careful if he continues to to push for, for, for Rice because it could cost him his job. Now, why I'm explaining all of that is because I'm not sure, going back to one of Liam's points, that many managers would have been able to succeed in such an environment. You mentioned Czech in training, Mark. Extraordinary. And also something that is not his fault is getting players out of the club. Um, You'll laugh at me, Mark, that I'm going to mention Arsenal here, but their overwhelming priority for this window was to get players out. Why? Because it was disrupting the harmony of the squad. The group was too bloated. And when there are players being left out of every match they set up, despite even training with the first team, there's going to be disgruntled players and it's going to create a difficult atmosphere that ultimately seeps onto the pitch and can harm results. That may have been a factor at Chelsea as well because there were a number of players who they failed to move on during the last transfer window and I don't think that can be left at the door of Frank Lampard. Is that left at the door of Maria Granovskaya then, Liam? Well, that's her primary responsibility. She is the negotiator-in-chief 
whether it's players coming in or players going out. And she's done a, a very good job over the years with regards to extracting maximum value for, for some players that, that Chelsea don't want. Uh, there have been some really notable successes there. But there's no denying that in a very testing transfer market to to offload players, particularly players on Premier League wages uh, to other clubs, perhaps around Europe, um, Chelsea didn't get enough outward business done. And it it appeared to be an issue, you know, at the time, as soon as the window closed, that, that this was going to add to the challenge that Frank Lampard faced. And I think it's it's proven to be a significant factor in all of this. And I think it's something I think that David has referred to before is the, you know, in the piece we mentioned that there were, there were suggestions of the possibility of replacing Lampard as far back as August from, from people kind of in around Chelsea. And when that is the atmosphere, I think it's only natural that some players that maybe don't find themselves in favor, don't feel quite the same sense of urgency to, to move elsewhere, even on loan, because there's such uncertainty about what's going to happen. If Ben Chilwell was the only one that Lampard really wanted, which is the inference of the article again, Liam, who pushed for the others? Is, is that Czech? Is that Abramovich? Is that Granoskaya? All of them? I think the answer is all of them. Chelsea do <coughs> have an element of their recruitment policy that that is manager-led or manager focused depending on who is the current incumbent we saw that with the Jorginho deal when Maurizio Sarri was there and and some of the players that they went and signed under Antonio Conte as well although of course there were a lot of other players he wanted that he didn't get but overall recruitment at Chelsea is always a bigger conversation involving quite a few different voices and they have an extensive recruitment network headed by Scott McLaughlin. And of course, Petr Cech is now in on all of those discussions. Marina Granovskaya, as the person who actually has to get the deals done, is involved in those discussions. And the owner, Roman Abramovich, takes mm. a keen interest in the players that Chelsea sign. You know, there, there are shades of grey to this just because Lampard wasn't the first one to bring the name of Kai Havertz or Timo Werner to the table doesn't mean he didn't want them, as, we, as we've said. It can be a player that everyone agrees on. But I think it does create an issue when you have players that that I think the the club rate very highly and regard as very valuable that maybe are seen not in the same context by the manager. And we've seen that with Lampard. We've seen that with previous coaches. We're, we're going to hear from, from Raf shortly. But as you understand it, Lampard's replacement had to be German speaking, did they, because of Werner and Havertz? Well, this was a, this was a story that um, Simon... Johnson and Dom Firefield wrote for us last week. Uh, we were already hearing then that German coaches were very much at the top of the list of potential successors to Lampard. I don't get the sense that it was solely to do with Werner and Havertz. Um, clearly, they are key considerations at club level because they were the two marquee signings in the last window, particularly Havertz, who is a player when Chelsea signed him from Bayer Leverkusen. That deal was kind of fated all over Europe. Elite, all other elite clubs would have wanted him normally. It was just exceptional circumstances that that made it quite a short queue for him, uh, an unusually short queue, and Chelsea were at the front of it and got the deal done. But fundamentally, Chelsea want a coach to, to turn this season around. That's partly why they're making this decision now, to give the new coach time to try to turn things around. But I think it only helps 
more than being able to speak German because Havertz and Werner both speak good English if the new coach is able to speak their football language and and the kind of culture of football that they were used to coming from from Leverkusen and RB Leipzig. And just to end then, Liam, you, you bore the brunt, I think, of, of Lampard's anger, really, uh, in his press conference on Friday. How do you feel about that now? And how do you feel about the end of, of Lampard at Chelsea? I kind of feel the same about it now as I felt about it on Friday when it happened, was that I didn't take it personally. It's something we've seen a lot that that managers that are under pressure will say something to journalists if they disagree with something that's been written. Uh, I didn't I didn't have an issue with it at all. And I think the only significance of it in my mind was that that and the broader press conference as a whole gave an insight into where Lampard's frame of mind was. And you could see that he was very chippy, very short-tempered and, and clearly... I don't know if, if he knew the full extent of where things were, but he clearly had a sense that things weren't looking good for him in what is obviously his dream job. You know, you can only imagine how how bad he, he must be feeling right now. Yeah, I took real exception to that on your or the Athletic's behalf, because despite being a huge fan of Lampard, I thought that was very uncalled for. And there's been some unbelievable comments to to some of our work recently and then, since the news came out, almost like blaming us or, or, or having a go at us for um, some of what we did, which I could not disagree more with. And there's there seems to be some sort of notion out there, not just with The Athletic, but with many other, and it's not a particularly new notion either, that what we're what the media are saying is getting to the players or, or is creating a negative environment around the club. When when you're reporting facts and and in good faith and on merit, um, it's compl- it's exactly how it should be. And like we should be resilient to criticism or, or sort of mini outbursts, like you were. They should be um, uh, resilient to f- what's fair, observation, fact, criticism. Call it what you like. And um, yeah, I, I thought that was. Uh, it was a little bit distasteful and easy. And there, there is this feeling out there that we should cheerlead. So we, 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 I don't really like to call them positive or negative pieces, but we have done a hell of a lot of work that has reflected really well and, and insightfully in a different way on the scouting, the analytics, the recruitment, Marina Granovskaya, Frank Lampard, Petr Cech, which all seems to get forgotten about as soon as you do something that a section of the fan base don't like or they don't like their club's decision and they need somebody to blame and we're, we're a more accountable social media presence than, than their manager or Roman Abramovich or, or somebody. And, um, and suddenly we're the, the, the bearers of doom. And, and so I, I kind of wanted to say to you, great work. And genuinely, it's, it's, um, it's a source of frustration for all of us working across all clubs and the industry as a whole. Just finally, I mean, when, when Simon and I reported the initial story a few weeks ago, I think we were well aware of the reaction that we would get from a section of Chelsea fans. And, and I understand it because Frank Lampard was never going to be just another manager to them. You know, there's no reason why he would be. He's arguably the club's greatest ever player. Um, but I feel like there's a, there's a misconception sometimes that the messenger creates the message and we don't. You know, we, we just report on what, what's happening as it's happened. 
as it's happening. And the only people that had the power to give Frank Lampard time were Chelsea. And they're the people that have decided that they have to make a change now. Okay, lockdown is a real slog and it is tough for so many of us, but there is no need for total and utter despair just yet. Uh, We hope that The Athletic is going to come to your rescue because with the help of our friends at Prostate Cancer UK, we'll be putting on 31 football quizzes across February and March to find out who the most knowledgeable of our subscribers is. And, of course, it will raise money for a very important cause. Prostate Cancer UK help fund life-saving research and provide valuable support and information for men and their partners affected or worried about prostate cancer. We'll be encouraging you to donate money on the night for a great cause. We'll be running a quiz for every team we cover, plus one each of the Bundesliga, Serie A, and La Liga. The winners of each quiz will go through to our grand final at the end of March, where there is a very nice £1,000 up for grabs, and we will match this with a donation to Prostate Cancer UK. The quizzes will be hosted by the correspondent for that club or league, and you'll be able to team up with anyone in your household to play. Sign up for a free 30-day trial to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash PCUK and register to play the quiz. So that's theathletic.com slash PCUK and register to play the quiz. Well, let's talk to Raf then from the Thomas Tuchel side of things rather than the Chelsea side of things. Um, do you think Tuchel thought long and hard before taking this job, Raf? I think he did. I think it was his preference and maybe that of his uh, staff to actually start in the new season rather than take over uh, halfway through. But I think ultimately Chelsea's determination to make this happen uh, would have made an impression on him because who knows what and who might have been happening come the summer if he'd not agreed to to take over more immediately. So I think the, the situation was perhaps not as he wanted it to be, but he felt it was too good to be turning down at this point. We heard from Liam earlier that it wasn't necessarily looking for a German speaker because Timo Werner and Kai Havertz can speak English perfectly well, but it was more a coach with Bundesliga experience to maybe bring that to some of these Chelsea players. Does that make sense to you, even though he's been out of the Bundesliga for a while? Yeah, I think it's actually less to do with Bundesliga experience, but more to do with working in a specific way. I think German managers are known to be very adaptable. Their English is good. They're good communicators. But first and foremost, and Tuchel is perhaps a bit of an outlier, actually, in that respect. But first and foremost, they are known for being coaches, for working with the resources at their disposal, for trying to maximize the potential of individuals and of teams, and for having a very defined tactical idea that they're putting out. So, you know, with Klopp being sort of the poster boy for modern German coaches, he, I think, has done what Wenger has done for French coaches maybe 20 years ago, which is to sort of raise the profile, make everybody sit up and take notice. And Chelsea wanted that type of manager. The fact that, in theory, that would have a beneficial impact on their two big German signings is, is a factor in this. But I think it's more to do with the type of coach that they wanted rather than the nationality or the, the linguistics. 
Raf, am I right in thinking that Chelsea considered Thomas Tuchel before they went for Antonio Conte? And did they have reservations then, or have I remembered that incorrectly? It's difficult to say whether they had reservations, but they certainly talked to Tuchel. They also talked to Ralph Rangnick at the time. I think they they liked both of them. There were lengthy talks. Uh, I was told that, uh, I remember at the time, that Tuchel made a good impression. At least he felt he had made a good impression. I think that there might have been one or two misgivings about what's happened since with him at Dortmund and, uh, of course, more immediately at PSG. And perhaps not the whole Chelsea hierarchy were united in the view that Tuchel was the best candidate coming in. But I think his coaching and the, the expertise and the way he makes teams play made it possible for Chelsea maybe to overlook or disregard some of those doubts because whoever you ask, whether that's at Mainz or Dortmund, I suspect, or even at PSG, they all will tell you that he's a great coach when it comes to working with players and making them play good football. And the political dimension of it is just something that Chelsea will have to deal with. What kind of character are they getting then, as well as someone who is a very good coach? Because you talk about, you know, the Klopp effect on German coaches. Not everybody has the same personality as Jurgen Klopp. So characteristic-wise, what are they getting? Yeah, well, Tuchel is, is a different character, but he can be very, very charming and very charismatic. Like Klopp, incidentally, he's incredibly tall. It doesn't come across maybe so much on television, but when you see him in a room, he really is a huge presence in that room. And I think players respond to that quite naturally and he can be a very warm and very very smart and very intelligent guy to talk about football uh, with. I think the issue hasn't been so much his man management although there were one or two problems with Dortmund in the latter stages but when it comes to disagreement with some of the transfer decisions at Dortmund at PSG that's when he proved himself to be quite headstrong and a little bit stubborn and ultimately fell out with one or two people. And I think that's why maybe some people at Chelsea think this is not going to be the most straightforward and easiest of managers to get along with. But again, because he's so good when it comes to the core components of the job, I think there's been a willingness to overlook that and to say, you know what, we're going to, we're going to be fine. Um, the first thing we need is somebody who will get the most out of these players and Tuchel, I think even his critics and detractors will say he has a habit and a real proven track record in getting out the most of these players, especially young players. So um, I can understand why Chelsea found that he's a, a great candidate to come in. But you can't overlook that for much longer now that he's in position or going to be in position. And there will be moments of tension, no doubt. His allies point out that there were very uh, unique circumstances at PSG that contributed to some of the issues. You're managing more than a club and um, and you touched upon the politics there. They also defend some of the accusations uh, from Dortmund as well. But the proof will be in the pudding now because managing up is going to be key and it's going to take somebody who has the temperament to accept the exact idiosyncratic nature of this weird and wonderful football club. And that's a big question mark of uh, how long and how well he'll be able to do that. That's mm. going to be really, really interesting. The other interesting thing in connection with that is that even at Dortmund, where the relationships were, were pretty broken by the time he left, I was speaking to someone there not long ago and he told me 
but he's an amazing manager. That was the bottom line is, yes, he might be tricky. He might, you know, go off on, 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 on something and, and maybe talk to you in a way that you don't necessarily find very nice. But when it comes down to it, he is very good at what he does. And I think if, one, if Chelsea have shown us one thing again and again is that ultimately they want somebody who gets the best results and everything else is almost an afterthought. They'll be able to live with someone who is a bit difficult as long as he provides the results constantly. And I think Tuchel has the acumen and the experience to do that, certainly in the medium long term. Is he going to be now the guy in charge for five, six years at Chelsea? I doubt it. But then is anyone? ever going to be that guy. That's a point I wanted to pick up on because I know very well that Thomas Tuchel was looking very closely at the Premier League in around 2018 when Arsene Wenger was coming towards the end at Arsenal. He identified Arsenal as being a dream scenario for him because they were the one Premier League club that was really looking like it would provide its next manager with time to build a project. And he's desperate to build a project with his philosophy, the way he thinks about the game, the way he tries to build relationships to to sort of imbue in his squad, his values and personality, etc. At the time, I do think he also would have loved to have taken on that challenge at Chelsea, provided Roman Abramovich would eventually give someone the reins in that way. And he had real reservations about whether anyone would ever get that. But he did really like it at Chelsea. So that's one thing I just wanted to ask you on on that project factor you mentioned, but also the charisma. When I cast my mind back to Dortmund, a lot of people would say he never had Klopp's charisma, his ability with to charm the media and the public in the same way. Well, we've just seen and spoken to Liam about how it ended with Frank taking shots at the media and and it becoming quite acrimonious. Is Tuchel going to be able to deal with that in the Premier League? I I cannot answer that second question. I'm not sure Thomas himself can answer that question. I think it's going to be a learning process for him to see what kind of pressures he's being faced with, both from upstairs, but also the wider public. And at Chelsea, once the, the fans come back, it'll be interesting to see what their reaction is. You know, he's the guy that, uh, through no fault of his own, of course, has succeeded Frank Lampard. So that's going to be that's going to be interesting. As far as the project is concerned, I mean, I think we have to take it with a pinch of salt. Uh, when Thomas Tuchel came to play with Dortmund at Tottenham, uh, unprompted, went into a, a big speech about how, as a child growing up, he'd always admired Tottenham Hotspur even though he wasn't quite sure where they were based and uh, how, how wonderful it was to go to White Hart Lane and be there. And uh, I was in the room and it very much sounded like a, a sort of a showreel, you know. Um, I, don't forget me the next time you're thinking of appointing a manager. <laughs> it is true that with Arsenal, there's been this special, I don't want to say connection, but I think at the back of his mind that for long term, he's thought you know, Arsenal would be the perfect club for me. But at some stage, Pep Guardiola felt the same. I don't think that's necessarily um, something unique. I think every a lot of coaches looked at the amount of time and power Arsene Wenger was given there. I thought, ooh, I can see myself doing that job. It's going to be amazing to be there. But I think ultimately, these guys at this level are, are pretty pragmatic. I think he realized that the Chelsea job was one that was available right now. And it was too good an opportunity to to turn down, even though it does come with, as you said, idiosyncrasies and uh, the odd complication. But of course, it also comes with great rewards and great chances to win stuff, which 
he hasn't really had in that respect before because at PSG, it was all about the Champions League and he got closer than anyone. In fact, you could make an argument for PSG being better, the better team in the final against Bayern, having better chances. At Dortmund, he won the cup. He pushed Bayern closer than anyone else has in, in recent years and winning would have been a miracle. So I think at Chelsea is maybe the first place where you can win something where it's both sort of realistic, but not an extreme. An extreme as it would have been with PSG, it's either the Champions League or nothing. Dortmund, you either win the championship or it's it's not really the same. I think at Chelsea, there's an opportunity to, to be successful without necessarily being judged in black and white terms. Raf, thank you. Uh, David has already managed to mention Arsenal in the chat with Liam. And Wenger in the chat with Raf. Uh, I'm fairly sure there'll be a bit of Arsenal to come uh, as we. They're playing Man United, chappers. So <laughs> <laughs> they are actually, yeah, there are uh, this coming weekend. Let's. Uh, uh, I'm sure there will be some uh, Arsenal conversation when we round up all the transfer stuff now with David Laurie Whitwell and Adam Crafton. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Let's start with Van der Beek then, uh, David. Started for United against Liverpool on Sunday. The lead item in your column details conversations that have been held between Solskjaer and Van der Beek Van der Beek in the week. That is not easy to say <laughs> as you get your pronunciation right. Uh, Van der Beek in the week about the player's future at Old Trafford. What's the situation? Beak, beak and weak. I'm going to try and get around that tongue twister <laughs> by not mentioning his name again. Um, yeah, well... Ahead of the Fulham game last week, um, it came to our attention that um, Solskjaer had sort of pulled him aside for some kind of short meeting, conversation, chat. These things happen all the time. And just reassured him on the path that he is on at United and how United view him and his involvement going forward, reassuring him uh, over the opportunities he would receive and the the sort of the map they have for him, which is a long-term project under contracts until 2025. They knew coming into this season that they wanted more midfielders as well as greater quality because of all the injury problems United suffered uh, in the previous season, most notably to Paul Pogba. And so there was always a chance Van der Beek's 
Bake's role would be somewhat limited. Um, I think they expected him to play, you know, this was mentioned during the negotiations before he signed, around 50% of games in his first season. That hasn't quite happened yet, but it still could happen by the end of the season. I think a player of his stature who's who's come into the club for, what, £40 million can kind of accept what's happening for this season, but you would imagine something needs to change next season and, and play a more prominent role. Now, I don't think that he is considering at all leaving or being loaned from United, and United certainly aren't. That's been made clear to him. But I think this conversation was probably needed a, a new player, young player, probably needs the trust of their coach, especially when they're out of, of the frame somewhat and in and out of the team, playing mainly as a substitute. He got that. The chat was said to be really positive. Uh, he started against Liverpool, despite not being involved at all against Fulham. Again, bought off in the 60s uh, of minutes and not the most impressive performance. And his replacement or player who came on, came on at the same time and Bruno scored the winning goal, it's going to be a difficult path into that first team on a regular basis uh, for Van der Beek. And it may require um, an exit, which I'm sure we'll come on to talk about soon. Well, I, I was just sort of thinking that the piece that Dave wrote this morning did just sort of readjust the narrative around Van der Beek because it feels like every week, certainly with myself doing the Q&As for Manchester United um, matches, that fans, as soon as a team sheet dropped, they'd be like, where's Van der Beek? Free Donny you know, this kind of, um, sort of growing concern as to where he was. And I think we saw against Liverpool that, OK, he's not quite at the level yet, or it's, it's not quite clicked for him so far that Solskjaer would therefore either drop Bruno Fernandes, you know, United's best player, uh, most creative player, certainly. And Paul Pogba's renaissance has sort of, I suppose, made that more difficult for Van der Beek. I guess when he signed, it wasn't absolutely clear that Pogba would stay, so that there was the need there to, to get him in. And I think his performance, while including good moments, you know, the pass to Rashford um, for Mason Greenwood's goal was was really sharp, really quick. There was that moment beforehand where United had a quick counter and they'll check back and passed it back when an early ball, you know, Bruno Fernandes is putting that early ball across. Whether it makes like, pass completes or not is another matter, but um, he certainly would, would have tried that. And I think that's just the either a mentality thing or a just, I don't know, maybe, maybe also a slight fitness thing coming from the Dutch league. I know he's obviously got incredible uh, elite standing with his Champions League pedigree, but um, it's, it is a slightly different pace to the game each week. So, but I, I, that's why I thought David's piece sort of just reset the, the, the narrative a little bit. Yeah, I, I just think there are, I just think there are quite a few things to this really. And I don't know what you think, Adam, but I, I texted a mate yesterday saying, "Why, why is there a, there is an obsession with Donny Van der Beek at the moment? And whether whatever he does, whether he starts or whether he whether he's on the bench or whether he comes on, there seems to be an obsession with him." And both the media and probably United fans ought to look at several other players in that United squad and realise. It can take time. Just because Bruno Fernandes arrived and has gone off like a train, there are plenty of others, Fred and Luke Shaw might be prime examples for very differing reasons, who take two, three years to, to get up to speed. Yeah, I, th I think there's a few, like you said, there's a few different things going on. I think the first thing is that he arrived at a point where United had to win every game. I know you can say United always have to win every game, but at the start of the season, Solskjaer was fighting for his job and every game felt like, you know, if this goes really, really wrong after the Spurs game, God knows what's going to happen next. So I think at that point, it was a case of you just keep playing Bruno. You keep playing Bruno because he gets you out of holes. Then I think you see him, Donny van der Beek play 
And it's a bit like, it reminds me of when Michael Carrick was not playing for England and the clamour to have Michael Carrick play for England because we're not seeing him play, therefore he must be absolutely incredible and the solution, and he's going to fix everything. We don't know, we've never seen that happen, but that might happen. So that's what it reminds me of a little bit. Um, I do think he's a good player, but he's so different to Bruno in his mentality in terms of the way he plays. He, Bruno Fernandes will drive you mad because he'll do five things wrong and then one thing that wins a game. I think Donny van der Beek probably does four things right, one thing wrong, but none of them really catch your eye. So it's a really different mentality. I think the thing that is strange is if that Solskjaer's preferred style of play, why have they bought him? necessarily does Solskjaer see this style of play evolving and changing to a more possession-based style um, that might be something that David's better equipped to answer no I don't know uh, so much on the tactical side of things um, what I do know or think on that point is that a player who was so aggressively wanted by Real Madrid previously yeah. and so shone in the Champions League I think it was against Real Madrid and against Tottenham um, strikes me as a player who does have that um, that one moment out out of the five in him, and also you know he was he was wanted by a few clubs before joining United. Although Real Madrid had had sort of slipped back because of their financial position, Arsenal were talking to him very closely, and they could have executed that deal if they really wanted to and had moved quicker. But I don't think he was their top priority. The same with a couple of other clubs, and so it's in there. And and yeah, that then brings it back to your your question about Solskjaer's use of him prior, now, and going forward. Um, I do think that scrutiny point is really interesting because someone independent of this whole situation said to me yesterday that Nathan Ake joined Manchester mm. City for forty five million pounds. Another Dutch international. He's not in the team, and nobody talks about him. And it's maybe a United obsession. It's maybe a attacking player obsession. It's maybe a global superstar type Ajax protege type conversation when, when somebody was linked with Real Madrid. And there is also the Pogba factor in there as well, which is a sort of um, inextricable link. And I sense from my conversations in preparing that piece that his future will be directly impacting on what happens with Van der Beek going forward. Uh, just one, uh, well, it might be, turn out to be more than uh, one on Pogba, but at The Athletic's uh, very own Alan Shearer made this point yesterday um, uh, where it'd be fair to say he was slightly cynical about Pogba's resurgence in form. And as we're a podcast that doesn't do cynicism, certainly where United is concerned, um, he he is feeling, Laurie, that Pogba's upturn in form is uh, either to get a new contract or be sold. Uh, and that it could be no coincidence that this summer is a, a crucial point for all parties. Uh, well, I suppose, first of all, I would say, who am I to disagree with Alan Shearer? You know, the Premier League's all the time goal scorer in terms of. Uh, I think you know, we're, all, we're all allowed can to I blow, deal with it. Leave can him I blow to smoke me. up his ass anymore? Okay, no, right, that's no. fine. Good. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, listen, that is, that is a certain, certain view. 
I, I personally would take the view that I think he's sort of seeing that United could actually win something, you know, you know, have a real shot at a title. And that's what's burning his fires a bit more. You know, when France won the World Cup, it was a clear objective in his mind that, you know, this was a, a major moment for him. And I think he sees, he senses that again. Um, clearly, um, you know, you've got this, not even an elephant in the room, everyone talks about it, but the, the sort of shadow of, you know, what Marina Rola said before the RB Leipzig game and the fact that he's got a year left on his contracts. You know, we did a piece at the time saying that um, it was, you know, basically United had sort of one more window to sell him really to get a sort of a fee for him because he's, he wasn't going to sign a new contract. I suppose I slightly wonder whether that does shift over time if the clubs that he thinks are going to be able to come in for him don't. And if um, United do actually think you know, he's, he's playing well, you know, why would, at the moment, why would they want to sell him? He seems like he's happy, um, you know, enough. He's, he's certainly playing well enough. Um, he offers them something different, but I suppose you've got four years of, of history there to kind of counterbalance that and say, well, listen, we've, we've been here before where we've had sort of moments in the sun and then it's, it's sort of fragmented and, and, and dissipated. And if United don't win the title, will that then be, okay, right, that is the time to cut the cord. And, you know, let, let's see what we can get for him. Um, so, yeah, I think um, there's certainly a hint of cynicism there, but also I feel like there's perhaps, for me, there's more uh, a genuine um, desire from Pog to actually win something and, and do well. And, and I think you do have to credit Solskjaer for the way he's handled that situation. I think quite a few people have said this, haven't they, that he um, you know, clearly could have done what former managers have done at Manchester United and um, kicked up. Uh, force or kind of caused a division with his player, tried to assert his authority and his power as, as the manager by jettisoning a player who has clearly, you know, done something or is, has allowed his agent to do something that unsettled the situation. Um, whereas actually Solskjaer's having known him as reserve team manager, you know, all those years ago, does have that kind of personal relationship with him and has, has basically said, you know, just get on with it. We're not going to cause a big stink about it. Um, and, and also I think when he was, you know, last season, when he was aware of doing his thing in, in Dubai and, and Miami sort of returning from, from injury that probably wasn't ideal from a United perspective. Solskjaer, again, didn't indulge him. He, he sort of let him do that you know, to be himself and didn't really mention him around the squad. He's, you know, just that's, that's Paul when he's back, you know, we'll, we'll start picking him, you know, if, if he's um, good enough. So um, I think you do have to credit Solskjaer for that. But I, yeah, I suppose, listen, I, I could have egg on my face by saying um, that I think it's actually, a, there's a more uh, sort of sporting reason for his uh, resurgence than a, than a kind of financial one. Well, Mark, I think your question is one not only being asked outside by people like us but I think it's a legitimate thing for people inside United to be wondering about because he'll have a year to go in the summer and his form and consistently consistency has picked up dramatically in the interviews that he gives after games he always says what Laurie just said that I just want to win I just want to win so I think he's genuinely happy at United winning like he was with France winning um and it's interesting his reaction to the Mina Raiola interview was that he just said I'm I'm 100% involved he is 100% involved while he's involved I I think this is going to be a at this rate a really big story over the summer because realistically he needs to sign or be sold but we don't know what the climate is going to be like financially and the sort of takers that will be there and I think from what I know and hear Van der Beek will be watching this really closely because Fernandez is a mainstay. He's becoming, you know, subject to trophies and longevity. A bit of a United legend. Pogba is the only 
realistic movable object in the position that he would like to play if if you're suggesting he may mm. play a bit deeper i don't think he probably sees it the same way at this point um and therefore if pogba doesn't go and he stays in this level of form and he keeps his fitness as he has done since he's returned and fernandez is immovable and they're still being linked to the likes of grealish then that's when i think van der beek is going to have to ask questions but those are big ifs and i mean adam speaks to so many major european clubs the 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 sort of pogba conversation this summer is only going to ratchet up as things stand yeah no i i, th- I think it's, it's interesting it was there was an interesting piece i think it was by uh, sam wallace in the telegraph last week about how using barcelona real madrid as as the threat when trying to get a new contract it doesn't really work anymore because Barcelona and Real Madrid don't have that much money anymore. Um, and it's, it's something which we're seeing, I think, a little bit now with Mo Salah at Liverpool in his current um, potential contract renewals and negotiations. And I think with Pogba again, it's, you know, it's where does he go? I, I don't think the Spanish clubs can afford what he would want. Um, I think it would come down to Juventus or Paris Saint-Germain, most likely. Um, I, I think the interesting thing in terms of Pogba is, for, you know, for years we've been told, oh... Is he being played in the right position? Or have they signed the right players to, to unlock him? And actually, what we've discovered over the past three or four weeks is if he's in the right mood, he can play as a six, he can play on the right, he can play on the left. It's all a case of whether, to be blunt, whether he can be bothered. And that's what we've seen over the last few weeks. That's when he's really focused, really on it, has a manager that has faith in him then he can do whatever he wants to do. And I was actually, I think I was quite dismissive of him that last week on on this podcast saying, well, what's he done? You know, he scored a deflected volley against Burnley and he's um, played well for a couple of games against Wolves and Aston Villa. And actually the past week, he's made me look like an idiot. And that's, <laughs> that's, but again, you know, it's six games where he's focused, he's just focused and, and played and just all, all I'm sort of left thinking is where on earth have you been for four years? What could, what could this club have achieved for four years? If you'd, if you'd had this same mentality and the same personality. And I do worry a bit about, you know, he's happy when they're winning. Well, I'm sorry, you don't always win in football. And that's part of the challenge of sport. You have to dig in and you have to, for someone that is amongst the most talented players, you have to set an example and really, you know, be even stronger when things aren't going well. So I don't love this idea that now Manchester United might win something, Paul Popper fancies it. And that might be doing him a huge disservice of everything he does behind the scenes. Um, but that's the feeling coming away from the last few weeks where I just think, what a, sh- what a shame. What a shame that this club has put so much in, into you from terms of faith over several years. And actually, when you're on it, this is what you could be. And I think that's what's always been the frustration for people like Roy Keane and Graeme Souness when talking about him as well. Let's do Arsenal now, David. Uh, obviously, there's this huge, epic, long read on the uh, Athletic about Mesut Ozil's departure. Uh, you've obviously contributed to it. Amy Lawrence, James McNicholas, Art de Roche. It is well worth a look. But um, he is gone. So let's move on to his replacement. Uh, Real Madrid's Martin Erdegaard. Is that right? Erdegaard? Odegaard? As we've had the Van der Beek, Van der Beek, Erdegaard? How do you I think want you got to it right it? first time, yeah. There you go, Martin Erdegaard. Um, how close is this to being done? Yeah, it's very close. He flew into the UK on Sunday night. Uh, medicals all scheduled for Monday. 
as far as we know, it would just be a loan without an option to buy. Um, but sort of reserve judgment on that until we've had more conversations or something official has been announced, which obviously isn't ideal for Arsenal because he's a player they've liked for a long time. He's been on their recruitment lists for a while. I think Edu, the technical director, has been working on this uh, in some form or another. Conversations have been taken taking place since before the summer 2020 transfer window. So in that case, you would certainly see him, if you chose to go for him, being part of your future into 2021, 2022 and beyond. If you don't get an option to buy, maybe that will be a bit disappointing. You've got to say that if they had got an option to buy Real Madrid the way they work these days, we saw it with Sergio Regalon when he signed for Tottenham, they would look for a buyback clause anyway, which would be a potential negative and stumbling block in negotiations but if Arsenal get him in for six months um, there will be a lot of excitement around the club he's very highly rated uh, inside and the fans seem very excited by it judging by the fact that they were tracking his aeroplane coming into land uh, he's obviously a, a star name um, a, an exciting prospect who it hasn't quite worked for at Real Madrid yet, but he did do well on loan at Real Sociedad. Um, I have some reservations over this. Arsenal were looking for a more senior player to Emile Smith-Rowe who could hit the ground running and make an immediate impact. Um, I don't think that Odegaard is more senior, particularly than Smith-Rowe, two years older, but in that same age bracket. He hasn't been playing for Real Madrid. Uh, he's quite slight in figure, so joining the Premier League in mid-season and the rigours that that will involve might take some adaptation time, and they haven't got that, which makes me think if they couldn't find the senior targets that they might have wanted, then Odegaard is potentially a really good option. But with the rise of Smith-Rowe, perhaps he's actually the competition for Smith-Rowe rather than the plan of Smith-Rowe being the competition for a more senior player. And Smith-Rowe leads them forward, exchanging roles with, with Odegaard, challenging each other, um, coming in for certain different matches. And so, yeah, I think um, Arsenal will be very pleased about this on the whole, uh, excited, and they won't have to wait for him to quarantine because of the elite sports person exemption, which means with a negative test for COVID, you can get going immediately. Although I presume the Southampton game on Tuesday night will be too soon. Uh, we will uh, hopefully see him in due course. Has he not got a knee injury? I'm sure I read an article that he's got a knee injury. I saw there was a lot of this going around yesterday and he was apparently listed as being injured on the Real Madrid website and he has been training inside in recent days and in the gym, which may be related to injury and may be related to the potential transfer. Um, but when I checked, I was told there was nothing significant to worry about and that Arsenal were very comfortable. So I think... Famous last words, that's okay. I don't want to cast your mind back to Kim Kallstrom signing with a broken back mid-season. Um, and also, crucially, uh, he was not deemed a close contact of um, Zinedine Zidane, who tested positive for COVID, which may say something about their relationship. Um, there were some other clubs who were offered him in talks for him. Real Sociedad again. Um, Leicester, I think, might have had him mentioned Spurs and a couple of others, but Arsenal uh, moved pretty decisively. And, and it seems that Edu, as technical director, is doing a, a good job again so far. Yeah, I'm intrigued by what you said about um, Emil Smith-Rowe's future, because I, I've been really impressed with watching him. I've only seen him you know, from a, from a distance, obviously, but I think his energy and his enthusiasm, it's a bit like what Manchester United are trying to do with the characters in their team. He seems like he's got you know, full of personality on the pitch. So do, do you feel that it will be a case of the pair of them 
sort of switching between the roles or, or you know, would, would you think Odegaard would expect to go in as, as a starter for Arsenal, given he's coming from Real Madrid and he, you know, plays for Real Sociedad, he has been playing well? I, I do think he will he will expect to start, but I think there will be some realism as well coming to the Premier League mid-season and, and perhaps needing a little bit of adaptation. As I said, um, a more senior player would have been seen to lead um, Arsenal if they had signed like a world-class number 10 to lead Arsenal forward from, from that creative attacking midfield role. And Smith Rowe would have challenged, competed for and eventually succeeded them. That was the plan. But these plans aren't always ideal. And so Odegaard presents a different dynamic. And just in my head, without having sort of deep conversations, yeah, Laurie, I do see them um, sharing that responsibility because Honestly, Smith Rowe's form has been that of a senior player. He he's he showed a little bit of tiredness against Crystal Palace, but by and large, he has taken to the the role naturally. They haven't though been tested in huge games. Um, they've all been fairly winnable, and the Chelsea one at the start, Chelsea were exceptionally poor. Um, and he's not been tested in front of crowds yet. He's not been tested on a consistent basis physically, which has been a problem for him in his earlier years. And so, just having another number in there will be um, very. Well welcome for Arsenal. However, it does leave them with a bit of an issue around having too many non-homegrown players. And that leads to the prospect of more players leaving before the January transfer window shuts or uh, for risk of repeating the Ozil and Socrates situation, not being registered. Read all the articles we discuss on today's podcast in full over on The Athletic. You can subscribe for just £3.99 a month. That way you get all the great analysis, you get the in-depth features from the very best footballer from the very best football writers around, and ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. Just go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. And I'm back on this podcast feed on Thursday alongside Matt Slater for our new podcast, The Business of Sport. The Athletic. <laughs>